student, am I on? Good. If you're a student, you're dismissed to go with Mr. Larry, I think. Hooray, Mr. Larry's here today. <laughs> and uh, I'm not even sure who else is. Oh, and Nick and Miss Ivy, I guess, the whole, the, the A-team's here today. So, hooray. Um, glad y'all are here. And um, Lord bless you. Uh, I'm glad y'all are here today. I greet you in the name of my Savior. Um, Christopher, thank y'all. That was super. Um, Justin, you're going to make this sound better. Lord bless you. Um, okay, we'll do. I'll do that at the end. I was going to say something about our trip, but I'll I'll uh, I'll do that at the end. Um, as I talk to you today about Second Kings chapter twenty, which I really hope that some of y'all got a chance to read that. What a what a great chapter from God's Word. Um, but as we look at that chapter today, I want to just remind you of something that I tell you regularly. It is absolutely impossible to address any topic or idea or doctrine or truth from God's Word without excluding other truths from God's Word that are equally true and important, but you just can't cover everything, right? So please don't let what I'm going to say today cause you alarm. Well, hey, but that's not the whole truth. Of course it's not the whole truth. It's sort of like a pie. You can't. Well, I mean, I've seen some of y'all you could, I guess, eat a whole pie, but most of us, we couldn't eat a whole pie. You can only eat a slice at a dime. So we're going to look at a slice, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean the rest of the pie is not good and true and important, but we just have to look at one slice. So uh, I just want to make sure that you don't miss what God wants to say to us today because you are concerned about other truths that he might have taught you in the past or that he wants to talk to you about in the future. Okay, is that, y'all with me on that? Okay, we live in a world that is very scary and alarming and confusing to me. And the older I get and the more I become aware of what's going on in our world, the more alarmed and confused um, I get. Uh, our world is unfixable. It's out of control. Um, it's scary. And because that is the impact that the world I live in has on me, I have to find comfort and hope and strength from somewhere. Uh, you might use drugs or booze or other distractions. Uh, that's not my, you know, choice uh, for my own self. So I tend to look at the stories 
the actions of God in his dealings with his children throughout the pages of the word of God. And as I read of his mighty interventions in the, the lives of his children, gives me hope and strength. Or that really gives me hope and strength uh, and, and courage uh, in a very powerful way. And I'm, I, I hope that some of you, I hope that all of you, would join me in doing that, practicing that spiritual discipline because it works. It has great impact upon my fears and my confusion and my, um, my uncomfortableness with how our world is going right now. Um, David understood this. I talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, King David lived in a world that was similar. A world that was out of control. That was unfixable. That was confusing. That was scary. And he tells us that when he, when that filled him with fear and darkness and uncomfortableness, he would go back and he would rehearse the mighty acts of God in the lives of others. He, he talks about this a number of times, but I read this last week and I'll read it again to you from, what, from Psalm 143. David says, My enemies have pursued my soul, crushing the life out of me and making me dwell in darkness. Within me my spirit grows faint and dismayed, but I remember the days of old. I reflect on all your deeds and I ponder the works of your hands. I'm having a hard time on the outside, he says. I'm having a hard time on the inside. And when, I, when it gets too much, I go back and reflect on the mighty deeds that God did in the days of old, in the lives of his children. And that somehow gets me through. It doesn't fix everything. It's not a panacea. It's not a magic cure. It doesn't make everything go away. But it'll get him through that day. And tomorrow will have to take care of itself. We'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow. But today, I can get through today when I remind myself of God's mighty deeds and the lives of some of his children in the past. A great example of that is God's dealings with just, we're going to read this chapter, at least most of it. Um, just for those of you, you, probably everybody in this place has heard of King Hezekiah. Um, he was the second to last good king in the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the people of God divided that nation into two parts, the north and the south. And the, all the kings in the northern kingdom were bad. There were 19 of them. Every one of them were bad. Almost all the kings in the southern kingdom were bad. There were also 19 of them. Uh, but there were about five or six that were great. They were just great. And uh, Jehoshaphat was one of them. Uh, King Asa mostly was, and then 
Hezekiah was the second to last good king, or actually great king. And then the last one was named Josiah. And those were four, and I think there was even maybe one or two more that I'm not thinking of right this second. But these were four, five, or six great kings that led the people of God in the southern kingdom. And uh, one of those guys, as I said, was Hezekiah. Um, He was the 15th king, just so you know, out of 19. So he was near the end. He was a descendant of David. And David reigned around 1000 B.C. Hezekiah uh, reigned about 300 years later, around 700, ballparking, 700 B.C. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he ultimately reigned 29 years. Well, that's the whole point of our lesson today. We'll talk about that. Um, So he reigned for 29 years. So that means he died when he was 54. Um, What's one of the things that's very significant about Hezekiah is that the 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 his spiritual advisor, his prophet of the day, that walked with him and helped him and advised him and challenged him and actually rebuked him was the prophet Isaiah. So he he. Hezekiah had a, had a heads up or, a, or a, he, he had an advantage over a lot of the kings. Uh, not many of the kings could say that my spiritual advisor was the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and so when Isaiah really challenged him and tried to help lead him in the right way, uh, uh, he was, had a huge impact upon Hezekiah. Um, 2 Kings chapter 18 says that there was never a king of Israel who loved God and followed God any more than Hezekiah did. He was a godly man. When God says that about you, that's a, that's a compliment. No king of Israel knew and loved and followed the Lord any more than King Hezekiah. And he was responsible for leading the people of God into a time of great spiritual Revival. He tore down all the idols and all the places of worship for false gods. He, he rebuilt the temple that had fallen into disrepair. He reestablished the Passover. The people of God had not, uh, not practiced the, uh, the Passover that Moses had told the people of God do it every year, forever. And the people of God had not practiced the Passover for hundreds of years. And he said, nope. The Bible says we're supposed to do this, and by God, we're going to do it. And and he reestablished the Passover. Um, He also led the people of God in the restoration of their economy, their society, and their military. They had become very, very weak. And he rebuilt the army, rebuilt the economy. He was a great, great king. Uh, This all happened during the first 14 years of his reign. Things were going great. And then three things happened. Um, I told you the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, while things were going better and better and better in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, things were getting worse and worse and worse. And one day, the nation of Assyria marched down and destroyed the northern kingdom. While Hezekiah was reigning in the southern kingdom. It would be like this a huge nation mar- are coming over to North America and destroying Canada 
while we all watch on TV. Now you might say, well, they wouldn't do that to us. But it would still be pretty terrifying to see a nation march over or fly over or however they get here and destroy a neighboring people group, especially kinfolk. These are relatives, okay, of the southern kingdom. And they literally wipe them off the face of the map and take the few survivors into captivity. And so it terrifies the people of the southern kingdom. It terrifies Hezekiah. Um, and all of Hezekiah's advisors start advising Hezekiah, hey, you better start building uh, treaties and relationships with the neighboring countries because y'all need to build a sort of a, 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 a group of nations together, an alliance of nations. If y'all got any chance of fighting off the Assyrians, you better form you an alliance with all the nations around you because Assyria is this huge army and they're going to do to you what they did to the northern kingdom. Everybody agreed that that was the right plan except for one voice. And that was Isaiah. And Isaiah said, Hezekiah, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of man. That's the voice of foolishness. Do not do that. Don't form alliances with ungodly nations. Oh, that the, the United States could learn anything. But anything. But, but uh, oh, that we learned that it never, ever, ever, ever is helpful or good to form alliances with ungodly people groups. Ever. Never. Because you missed me. Never. And Isaiah said, Hezekiah, it'll be your downfall if you do it. Well, Hezekiah struggled. And he didn't know who to, all of my advisors. It makes common sense. Everybody knows this is right. But the prophet of God saying, don't do it. Well, the next year, Assyria comes back and uh, uh, they're, they're, on, they're on the horizon coming toward the southern kingdom to do the very th thing that they did to the northern kingdom. They're coming to do it to the southern kingdom. And now everybody's terrified. Um, and on top of that, Hezekiah gets deathly ill. And that's where we're going to pick up this story. So he's got the Assyrians marching toward the southern kingdom to attack them like they did the northern kingdom. He's got all of his advisors telling him to do something that the prophet of God's telling him not to do. And he die deathly sick. So sick that he's terrified he's going to die. And so he starts praying, God, please heal me. Please don't let me die. Okay, so that's sort of the that's where we are, okay? Woo, we're going to have to hurry. Let's go. Y'all listen to me. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, okay? In those days, the days when Assyria is coming to destroy the southern kingdom, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. He's been praying, oh God, heal me, oh God, heal me. And God sends him a message through the prophet of God. He says, not only am I not going to heal you, you need to get ready because you're about to die. That's the answer God gave him. That's the answer to Hezekiah's prayer. 
Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion, and I have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I've lived my life for you. I've obeyed you. I've served you. I've led the people of God from badness to goodness, from from uh, uh, wickedness to reform and revival and success. I've served you faithfully. I've done what's right for you, uh, uh, for your people. I've lived the way you wanted me to. Lord, basically you owe me. What he's saying is, Lord, I have faithfully lived for you. If you love me, Like you told me you do. You'll make me well. Okay? Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears and I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Basically what, I, what God says, he sends Isaiah back and says, okay, you have been faithful. You have lived for me. You have served your, my people uh, effectively and well. Um, you, you, you have Done, you've, you've obeyed me, and I do love you, so okay. I will heal you. I'll give you 15 years. Okay? Let's go on. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. And they did so, and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? Um... uh, Hezekiah says, Lord, I am so sick and I'm so close to death. It's not that I doubt you when you tell me I'm going to get well, but I would like a sign. I want a proof. I want evidence that you really do love me and that you really are going to be a person of your word. You're going to tell me that you're going to do what you promised me you would do. Uh, let's see here. And as I answer, this is the Lord's sign to you that, that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? Basically, what he's saying is, do you want... God says through Isaiah to, to King Hezekiah, your sign that I'm going to do what I say, that I, that I love you, that I'm gonna pro- I'll do what I promised you is, I'll make time move forward an hour, this is an hour. You, you can study it if you want to, and if you, if you doubt me. But I'm gonna. I can make time move forward an hour, or I can make time go backwards an hour. That's what he's saying. It's a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps," said Hezekiah. "Rather have it go back ten steps." And then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord and the Lord made the shadow go back the ten steps that it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Ahaz was his daddy who built uh, part of a 
of this palace with steps. And when the sun hit the, the temple, the shadow fell on the steps in such a way that it, you could tell the time of day. Uh, it was a, really an architectural, uh, it, was, it was genius the way they did that. Uh, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. There's way more to this. This miracle that God did at the request of Hezekiah was so phenomenal. And it was, it was, Hezekiah's not the only one that saw this. Everybody in the, in the, in the, at least in the Middle East, saw this miracle take place. They saw time go backwards an hour. And it made such a stir that neighboring nations wanted to find out why this happened. And the Babylonians sent, they did some investigating. They found out that there was this king in Israel that was deathly ill. And on the same day of this miracle of time going back, he was healed. So they send an envoy to find out what's going on. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the story here. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil. His armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet went to, the, went to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did those men say and where did they come from? They, oh, they came from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet said, what did they see in your palace? Oh, they saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, that will be born to you or born to your descendants will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. He could be referring to Daniel. Just FYI. The word of the Lord, uh, uh, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? As for the other events and Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? You can actually see that fountain and walk through that tunnel that Hezekiah built if you go to Jerusalem to this day. Some of you, some of you have done that. Um, I've done that. Uh, let's see. Hezekiah rested with his father and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Now that doesn't sound like that big a deal until you read the next verse. First verse of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Just so you know, jump, jump to the end of the story. Manasseh, the Bible says, notice I, remember I said when God brags on you, that's high bragging when God says there's never been a king before or after Hezekiah that was any greater than Hezekiah. Well, in the same vein, God said about Hezekiah's son Manasseh, there's never been a king 
more wicked and evil and destructive than Manasseh. Very significant when Manasseh was born. He was 13 when he became king. That means he was born three years after his daddy should have died. Okay? Real quickly, let me, let me just... I've got four questions that I want to ask myself, that I've been asking myself all week. And I hope that you will join me in maybe pondering them yourself. Um, first question is this. What sign, what evidence, what proof does God have to do to convince me that he really loves me? Has a guy spent his life knowing and loving and following a God who every day of Hezekiah's life God had demonstrated to him, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to stand by you and help you. And yet when Hezekiah faced the Assyrian army over here and death over here, God, I need a sign. God, I need a sign. Can a brother get a sign? Larry, what does God have to do to convince me that he is going to relate to me every day of my life in ways that are always wise, always kind, always merciful, always faithful. He is going to, every time God makes me a promise, He is going to always keep it. What does God have to do? Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 32, if God sacrificed His Son for us, won't he also with him give us all things? In Titus 3, Paul says, but when this, not because of the kindness and love to us, he saved us, not because of the good things that we've done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, and he gave us a new birth, and he gave us new life. And he has placed his Holy Spirit inside you. There are going to be moments when we face things, armies and death and sickness and financial disarray and political turmoil and global chaos. More probably when we face a phone call from the police regarding our children. Or we get a report card in the mail. Well, I don't think they do report cards in the mail anymore. But 
however they do them, and we go, what in Sam Hill's going on? I thought everything was great. Or we get the wrong phone call from the doctor's office. What does God have to do to prove to me and to prove to you that he is going to always relate to us in ways that are merciful and kind and forgiving and gracious. What's he got to do? Number two. How do I really, really, honest engine, how do I view death? More significantly, how am I going to respond when I face death like Hezekiah did? You're going to die. How am I going to face death? The world unanimously declares there is nothing worse than death. Create a list of a hundred terrible things on every, unanimously, almost eight billion people, unanimously, unanimously, eight billion people say, create your list of your top 100 terrible things. Number one on everybody's list is death. How am I going to respond to death? When I face it personally or when a loved one faces it. I will tell you that if you read the Bible and if you read history, Greek history, Roman history, Jewish history, history throughout the last 2,000 years, when historians, I'm not talking about Christian historians, when secular historians in Jesus' day through today, when historians write about Christians, when historians write about the people of God, there's consistently three things that are said about Christians from a historical perspective. They love each other, they help the poor, and they have a view of death that is different than we've ever seen. Historically, historians have noticed about the people of God, the church, that they view death differently than the world. How do you view death? How do I view death? And tell you how David and Paul viewed it. Listen to what David says in Psalm 16. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice, for my body rests in safety. For you, O Lord, will not leave my soul with the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life and grant to me the joy of your presence 
and the pleasures of living with you forever. He goes on to say in Psalm 84, one day in your courts, just one day, one day in your presence is better than a thousand days anywhere else. I'd rather be the gatekeeper in God's house than live the good life of abundance with those that do not know you. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1. For me, true life means living for Christ. And dying is even better than that. But if I live, I can do more fruitful service for Christ. So I really don't know what's better. I'm torn between two desires. For I long to be with Christ, which would be best of all. I realize that there's balance. I'm not saying that we all ought to jump up on a mountain or go over to an island and take poison and kill ourselves. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that we should not enjoy the blessings of God while we live on this earth. That's, that's not my point. But my experience with the people of God that I know is that the overwhelming majority of us see death and respond to death very similar to how people see death and respond to death who do not know God. I find it remarkable that in Isaiah 64, the Lord Jesus says, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth that are so glorious that no one will even think about the old heaven and earth ever again. I don't know what heaven, the new heaven and new heaven, the new heaven and new earth are going to be like, but God says it's going to be so great that you and I will never hear the words. Remember when? Throughout eternity, no one will utter the words. Remember when? Remember when we saw that? Remember when we did that? Remember when we... Never free. This will be so... Um, Sort of like going to the French Riviera. The people on the French Riviera, you don't overhear them saying, you remember Pickwick? <laughs> you remember Enid Lake? You don't hear that. Never, ever, ever for any reason. God says, I'm creating something for you that's going to be so glorious. You'll never ever say or hear, remember when. And the Lord Jesus, he said in John 14, I'm going away. And while I'm gone, I'm going to be busy preparing a place for you. He's been gone 2,000 years. 
In six days, if you have a brain bigger than an English pea, in six days, the Bible says that God created this universe. In six days. He's been working on this place for me and you for 2,000 years. What must it look like? What must it look like? C.S. Lewis made this statement. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to continue making mud pies in a slum for he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Oh, we are far too easily pleased. My last question, I was going to do four, but I'll just do three. My last question is simply this. Is it possible that God's no, God's wait, or God's stop now could be expressions of kindness rather than expressions of meanness or humility? God gave Hezekiah 14 years as king. And he said, I want you to die now. And I want you to come be with me in heaven. And Hezekiah said, no. If you love me, if you care anything about me, if you've noticed any of my faithfulness, you'll give me more time. And God said, okay. I love you and I've noticed your faithfulness. I'll give you more time. Time that's going to be used to show the Babylonians the wealth of Israel that will someday motivate them to come back and level your nation to the ground. I'll give you more time. Time to bear a son named Manasseh who will be the most wicked, evil king that the nation of Israel ever had. And who will single-handedly in one generation undo every good thing that you, Hezekiah, spent your life doing. That's what you want. I sure would like to spare you that. I'd love for your reforms. I'd love for the things that you've built and achieved. I'd love for them to last forever. But by God, I want a son. I want more time. Okay. But the cost of not accepting my plans, my love, my wisdom, they're, they're high. They're high. I'm not trying to be mean to you, Hezekiah. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm not trying to ruin your life or mess up your day 
or rain on your parade. I'm trying to bless you and I'm trying to... The things that you have done with your life, I want them to last and to bless your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren forever. What do you want? What do you want? I found this verse in Isaiah 57. Godly people perish and no one understands that they are taken away by God to be spared from approaching evil. Let me read one more time. Isaiah 57. Godly people perish. They die. And no one understands that they are taken away by God to be spared from approaching evil. Death was not Hezekiah's greatest tragedy. Death was not Hezekiah's greatest enemy. That 15 years, that's the tragedy. That's the enemy. That's where he opened the door to Babylon and to Manasseh. Hezekiah's greatest accomplishments were erased because he demanded more time. To our plans, our hopes, and our dreams as evidence of a lack of love rather than a means of God's greatest blessings. I'm not saying we ought not wrestle with God. I'm not saying we ought not storm the throne of grace. I'm not, that's, that's, those are other pieces of the pie, right? But when God says no, or God says wait, or God says it's over. Is it possible? That's all I'm suggesting. Larry, is it possible that those are expressions of God's love too? Could God be that wise? Could God be that powerful? Could God be that loving that he tries to spare us from futures that involve things that if we could go back and do it over again? Oh my goodness. I think Hezekiah would say, Oh, I wish I'd have died for 15 years earlier. But I had to have my way. Because I know best. I know best. Okay. Hunter, come up here and help me with the Lord's Supper. And uh, get your dad. He hadn't done anything for the kingdom this week. So come on up here. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Psalm 69 says, Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is glorious. Take care of me, for your mercy is so abundant. We're going to eat bread, and we're going to drink wine, or juice, 
juice is yellow, wine's purple. Bread just looks like bread. We're going to eat bread and we're going to drink wine. We're going to do that because Jesus told his followers the night before he died, when you gather together, I'm about to do something you're not going to understand for a little while. And it's going to make you very, very sad. But there'll be a day when your tears will turn to rejoicing. And you'll understand that I gave my life as an expression of my Father's everlasting love. I want you to experience His mercy. And the way that you'll experience His mercy is by me giving my life as a sacrifice and me shedding my blood as the means through which you can have your sins forgiven and you can be made right in the sight of God and adopted into His family. If that's your hope, if that's your belief, if that's what you're holding on to with all your life, that's what I'm holding on to, then I want you to come and eat and drink and give thanks and remember what God did for you and rejoice in that. Okay? You come. Have prayer. There'll be people on my right and my left by the windows that would have a big beast. Good for you. I'd like to have prayer. It's okay. Have a big beast. Good for you.